Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm Ryan Coonerty. Along with Debbie Cox Bolton of the New Deal, I'm lucky enough to be your co-host. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports the next generation of American leaders. From attorneys generals, to state senators, to mayors, to school board members, these are the people that are pushing policies and politics that will respond to climate change, rebuild our economy, address racial injustice, and restore our democracy. These are incredibly talented people who have dedicated themselves to public service when their country and their communities need it the most. Check out NewDealLeaders.org to see what I'm talking about. Today, I talk with Indiana Representative Blake Johnson. He had some great insights on what the Democrats could do to better connect with rural voters, communicating with 20 and 30-year-olds, and why the front of her bounty box is better than the back. His commitment to public service is deep, and his insights are keen. Enjoy. Indiana Representative Blake Johnson, welcome to An Honorable Profession. It is wonderful to be speaking with you today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. So I got to start. You represent the 100th Congressional District, which makes you the A-plus district in the legislature. Do you often remind your colleagues that you're perfect? Yeah, I kind of go with the Omega District. That's kind of been my approach is what I'll say. But yeah, being the ultimate district, is it's got its perks for sure. So we're going to start You've worn a lot of hats, and I want to sort of work through each one of them because they're all different forms of public service and probably can tell us a lot about how to make change in your community. But you were appointed to the seat in June of 2020, not the easiest time to be entering state government. Can you talk a little bit about your experience in the legislature thus far and how you've moved from the COVID period to the quasi post-COVID period and what your priorities have been? Sure. Yeah. So yeah, like you said, I came in in the summer of 2020 and my first session would have been that January, 2021. And it was a completely different style of session. We were in the Indiana government center rather than being in the chamber. We were spread out, you know, our, our desks were all six feet apart. We were not having the kind of personal interaction that is now normal in terms of my service in the state house. Uh, so a lot of what I was doing was learning an approach that would not be my approach every session after that. So we were relying a lot more on you know digital communication to build relationships with colleagues. We were trying to you know <laughs> leave notes and letters on each other's desks and try to kind of build some inroads to maybe get your bill heard or to learn more about the committees I was on. So it was definitely a kind of turbulent landing to say the least as I started my time. In the legislature. And, you know, now, obviously, not that the pandemic's entirely over, but with a lot of the restrictions having being lifted, it's much more the normal kind of approach, right? Getting to know everyone, spending time together, finding out what kind of common ground we have on public policy, and looking for ways to see if we can get something done. Though I, I should say, in Indiana, I'm as a Democrat, I'm in the super minority. So there are 30 Democrats to 70 Republicans. Um, so much of my work is trying to convince Republicans to be interested in the policy areas that I care about. And I think that's a perfect follow-up, which is building relationships is already hard in a polarized era. I imagine it's particularly hard when you're in the super minority. How do you build relationships and try to get your legislation through when the leadership may not naturally be inclined to, to hear or talk about what you want to talk about? 
Yeah, I mean, I try to approach the job from a place that we're all there with the interest of trying to make Indiana better, obviously with a wide variety of approaches to get there. And and naturally, there are some folks that I think are there for other reasons. But every conversation I'm in, every discussion, every time I'm sitting down at the table for committee, I try to approach those conversations as if the person across from me cares just as much as I do about making this state a better place to live, work, play, to raise a family and all of that. And then, you know, I also, I grew up in the country, right? I'm from a place called Daleville, Indiana, which at the time that I was there had 2,500 people and a White Castle. Now it's got a Starbucks, which I think was a pretty significant uh, change for our community. But, you know, I grew up around Republicans. I grew up in communities that were far more conservative. Now I represent obviously the largest city in the state of Indiana and, and I'm in a much more progressive community, but I still, you know, know how to sit down at a table and have a conversation that doesn't devolve into pointing fingers and calling each other names. In fact, like, you know, my family, I married into a Republican family, though my wife is no longer a Republican. So I was, you know, Thanksgiving and Christmas was always a lesson in how to try to get things done, even if you disagree vehemently on some of the public policy areas. Can I ask, because it wasn't that long ago that Indiana was, if not a blue state, it was purplish a purplish state. What do you think the Democratic Party has done or not done that's caused Indiana to become more red? And what, what would you like to see the party do going forward? That's a tough question there. I I would say that, you know, it was, you know, Obama won the state in 2008, which was a pretty extraordinary thing. I was in college at the time, and I remember being blown away that that had been the case. You know, I, I think part of the problem is and let me see the right way to say this, you know, so I always think about how Democrats, we are very, very good at diving really deep into policy. And we are very confident in our positions and know that we know the right way to do things. The problem is, I always think about a, a brownie box. You know, Republicans are so good at showing you the front of the brownie box. I mean, look how good this brownie looks. I mean, the perfect crust of chocolate burnt just on the top and oh, the chunks of chocolate. This is going to taste really, really good. And Democrats, we are often guilty of only showing you the back of the brownie box. And, you know, it's going to taste good, but uh, yeah, there's this many grams of fat and all this sugar and it's you know 70% of your daily intake. And we we just tend to forget that sometimes you've got to hone the message a bit for who you're talking to. And I think in the process of that, I, I think we're also guilty sometimes of forgetting what it's like just to live in a completely different kind of community and in a different set of circumstances. And so a perfect example, I went to a coal mine in my community and actually went and visited. There was a, an invitation out to all the legislators and I was the only Democrat that went on this particular visit with I think like there were 12 Republicans on the trip. And so we actually went down into the mine and I was in the trolley with one of these guys and, and he's like, I'm kind of surprised you came. Usually the Democrats don't come up. And I was like, what do you want me to go back and tell them? And he said that we're not stupid. And it really stuck with me that, you know, in that community, that small community in Southern Indiana, those folks think that Democrats think they're stupid. And we've got to fix that. And I think we've got to fix the idea that we are so wrapped up in what they view as our fringe issues that we've forgotten about the kitchen table issues and the things that matter to them and that they care about raising their family just the way we do. So I think there is absolutely a divide. And not surprisingly, I think that divide is as much as it's Republican, Democrat, it's very much urban and rural now as well. Wow. I think that's as succinct an explanation as I've ever heard, having done you know 200 of these podcasts and talking about many states that are red states or purple states and how the Democratic Party can reach out. And I think that's as good advice as we've heard. 
how do you try to translate that sentiment and the effort to expand the base to your legislative priorities? Yeah, I mean, it's obviously not easier. We'd be doing a much better job of it <laughs> as a party. The things I care about, right, are how do we make the community I live in, the state I live in, safer, stronger, and smarter. And, and I kind of make everything within that prism, which I think are things that most people can agree with. And, you know, safer being the things you'd expect around public safety, but also, you know, in Indiana, we've had 930 fatal crashes in 2021, thousands of pedestrians struck. I mean, it's a pretty significant issue as it is around the country. But in my county alone, we've, I think we've seen a 32% increase in deaths as a result of fatal crashes, which include pedestrians and cyclists. And that's something that concerns me quite a bit. Stronger being the economics of it all, like are people able to actually provide for their families without working three or four jobs? Smarter being what you'd expect also, like are we actually educating our kids in a way that prepares them for the jobs of the next century, right? And I think that that's, you know, things that we should all be able to agree on. Now, the problem, of course, is that even within those areas, which I think are pretty common sense focus areas, there are still these distractions, right? And we're seeing it in our legislature right now with bringing back CRT bills, right? Where CRT is not being taught in K through 12. I mean, it's just not happening. Uh, we have a, a senator right now that is literally proposing a bill around uh, dress codes because he says kids are dressing as furries. I mean, just ridiculous things that are fashioned in a way that are just designed to drive us apart. And so I'm trying every single day to refocus the narrative in my conversations with my Republican colleagues, but also in convincing my colleagues on our side that when we go to the mic, let's be focused on the things that matter to everyday people in our state uh, and not get drawn into these kind of ridiculous conversations that are solutions in search of a problem. Can I ask, because you came from the city county government where you're a council member yes, and oversaw billion dollar budget and was in the majority. How's that change been? And is it worth it <laughs> to move to a bigger stage, yeah. but then be stuck with having to deal with um, you know, bills that are divisive and crazy and harmful and not having a huge amount of power to be able to stop them? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And there there are definitely days where I miss being in the majority and, you know, being chairman of a committee and having the ability to move things along. But at the end of the day, you know, I really do, and it, it may sound a little cliche, but I mean, I, I feel a pretty significant sense of duty. And, you know, I've been raised by strong-willed women in particular that told me from the very beginning that my job was to try to make life better for as many people as possible in the short amount of time that I've got on this earth. And on the city council, that was, you know, about 40,000 people or 30,000 people really. And now in the in the state house, it's closer to 65,000 people. And, and so, you know, the issues are a little higher level, but they affect a lot more people. And I want to be at that table. I want to be one of the people providing solutions and trying to chip away at some of the division and the scar tissue that's making it so hard for politics to be a productive place these days. And so, yeah, do I miss the ability to have an idea and it be law a month later, 100%. I don't miss getting emails and phone calls about individual potholes. Uh, but, you know, the job is the job and I feel a pretty immense sense of responsibility in doing it. I agree. I'm three weeks out of office and just the other day, some guy stopped me to yell because he didn't like the way traffic was detoured on his street. And uh, I was like, I don't have to listen to this anymore. <laughs> was yeah. After 16 years, it was really nice. Ryan, can I just say one thing really quickly? So what's interesting though, for my job, so I'm a state representative in Indianapolis. I live about a half a mile from the state house. So in terms of every member of the legislature, I live closer than anyone else. 
So while many of my colleagues come here for the week and then go back on the weekend and attend an event or whatnot, like I'm still kind of expected to be at neighborhood meetings the way I was when I was a city councilor. And so like, even though I don't have to necessarily address individual potholes, I'm definitely still a person people think they can talk to about it. <laughs> so I'm like consistently just like, yeah, yeah, I'll me hand that off to the councilman. Uh, sure. But, you know, it's I still feel like I'm, you know, doing a little bit of double duty at this point. I never thought about that. But yeah, that's a strange reality you must exist in a little bit. The best of both worlds or the worst, depending on your viewpoint. You said you were raised by strong women and they push you towards public service. Has public service always been on your radar? How did you first decide to enter elected office and what was that experience like? Sure. So I um, you know, I grew up in a small town and went to church with my grandparents every single Sunday. And I think that my first job in public service was when my grandmother put me at the front door of the church and said that my job was to make sure every single person felt welcome. And so I opened the door for them and greet them. I, I was probably I don't know, six years old, however old you are when you first have your first memories, right? I, I can vividly remember being at that church door until I got to an age where I thought I was way too cool to be doing it. But you know, I think that was a seed that got planted. And I should mention, my grandmother was a town councilwoman for 28 years. My grandfather was a law enforcement officer who ran for sheriff back in the 70s of our county. He didn't win, but uh, always stayed involved. And so I think that was the seed that got planted. And you know, almost like a, a kind of perfect way to describe it is that everything since then has been about holding doors open for people, right? And I was volunteering on campaigns and getting involved with candidates that I really felt strongly about. But it was, you know, 2014 or so when my city councilor, uh, Mary Moriarty Adams, who I, I loved very, very much, announced that she was going to retire. And the kind of opportunity was almost too perfect, um, right? An opportunity to kind of dig into local government issues and and to kind of make good on the legacy that my grandparents had had started for our family. And, you know, it's crazy. I, I remember my grandfather passed before I won the primary. So my grandparents were both 92 years old. My grandfather passed before I, I won the primary, but I, I'll never forget on the night I actually won the election in November, I stepped outside and called my grandmother and it was extraordinary. And she would pass away, you know, six months later, never got to see me in the state house, but I still very much see life through the prism that they established for me and, and believe that my service is a direct result of the way that they lived and the way that they taught me to approach my life after that. Wow, that's a powerful story. I love the metaphor of opening the door, right? Like that's so much of the job is just making sure that, that people feel welcome in the spaces where decisions are made and have the opportunity to influence their future. That makes a lot of sense. How old were you when you got elected? So I would have been 29. Yeah, 29. So elected at 29. At the time, and until recently, you were the president and CEO of Indie Hub, which is a nonprofit that seeks to connect 20s and 30-somethings to the government, to volunteerism and leadership, and just plug in more generally. How did those experiences of being in elected office and then also trying to help other 20 and 30-somethings connect, how do they overlap? How do they intertwine? How'd you wear those hats? You know, it kind of goes back to what I shared about opening doors. I mean, that entire job at Indie Hub was about belonging, right? Making sure that if someone landed here from some other community, that they immediately felt like they belonged and that they could have a place in this city, whether it was through connections with other people, connections with a nonprofit that would kind of align with their passions and interests, 
connections with leadership opportunities to kind of upskill and do even more and make a better, a bigger impact. And so it really overlapped perfectly, especially considering that, you know, I approach my public service through that same kind of lens that, you know, all of our community should be a place that everyone feels like they belong in and that they can, you know, have some skin in the game to make it better. So, you know, and that job was also just kind of fun because it's like, you know, we hosted events and networking and, you know, volunteer programs. And so it was kind of a dream job that was just all about making people feel like they were the superheroes that our city needed. And to this day, and I'm following very closely because that organization is really near and dear to my heart. 20 and 30 somethings, young people in general need to go and connect with government and with the civic life of their community, but also government needs to go and connect to them, right? It's a two-way relationship. What do you think that government could do better to meet 20 and 30-somethings where they are and engage them in the process? Well, I mean, I think partly the answer is in your question. You know, I think it's interesting. I came into the legislature and, you know, our general approach to communication was we would do press releases. You know, it's these very like kind of planned out moments, right? Your bills were being filed or your announcement of what committees you were on, or you gave a, a comment on a particular piece of legislation. And that was kind of like the majority of it was just these press releases, right? And you had some members that were finding other channels to communicate, uh, like social media, or maybe they have an, an e-news distribution. But I, I think part of our responsibility is to make all of this a little more digestible, and communicate in all the ways we possibly can. And it's not easy, right? I mean, to put all that stuff together is really kind of a time-consuming thing. But, you know, I think it's our responsibility to get the information out and to share opportunities to make a difference as much as it is the individual citizen's responsibility to get engaged. And, And quite frankly, you know, people have kind of lost faith in politicians, lost faith in their government. There's quite a bit of data to back it up, right? That you know, we're not really excited about either party. In fact, I think millennials were the first generation where the majority did not identify as a Democrat or Republican. And then Gen Z, I mean, it's off the charts, right? They they all consider themselves independents. So we have to kind of going back to an early, that earlier thought around how we communicate, like we've got to do a better job of, you know, sharing a message that resonates and speaking to the issues of younger voters in particular, which we don't do a great job of. And then also being willing to attack that idea on every medium we possibly can, right? So, you know, I'm still trying to figure out Reddit, right? Like, But I know that's a place where I could be communicating better. You know, I launched a podcast that's pretty much just focused on explaining what's going on in, on the issues and the mechanics of how the legislature works. I even started doing text messaging, right? So the community app, which allows you to kind of build a network of people that you can communicate with through text. So I'm trying to find any way I can to get the word out and to make sure that people have a two-way dialogue in government, that they can easily reach me, easily ask me questions, then I can vice versa share with them the sort of updates that empower them to take a, a larger stake in what's happening in their government. I think that's right. I think it's all about it being more of a dialogue and less of a of a one-way conversation. Tell me about that podcast, Session Sessions is what it's called. There are a few electeds who are out there doing it, but not a lot. Tell me about what inspired you and what you hope to get from it. You know, so to be honest with you, I had just started myself to like really enjoy podcasts, right? As like a mechanism of if I was walking somewhere or in a long drive, it was kind of a really great way to, to absorb a bunch of information. It also kind of stemmed from these conversations I was having with some of my colleagues, like people just didn't understand what was going on in the building. 
And most people don't know who their legislator is for sure. And most people have no idea like what bills are, are traveling until there's like one that just blows up. Right. So the idea was how do we, you know, share information in a way that's, you know, useful, digestible and quick. Right. So the episodes are usually around 30 minutes. And how do we also explain behind the scenes what it's like to be there, to make people, make sure people got to meet their legislators in this venue, but also kind of just see how the sausage is made. Uh, you know, there's that old saying, right, about how the sausage is made. I, I think I really wanted to kind of open up the encasing and show, show quite a bit. So, and so far it's been really well received, you know, it's from both other legislators and we're, you know, it's, I'm only having my caucus members on, but Republicans are coming up to me and saying, hey, can I come on sometime? And, you know, can we be a part of the conversation and lobbyists and advocates? It's kind of blown up in a way that's, that's really surprised me because I kind of just thought it'd be me with like 25 of my constituents who would tune in, but it's been a little more successful than that. That's fantastic. Uh, I encourage everyone to go check it out. And as a model for uh, maybe other elected officials who are looking for a new way to have a dialogue, both with their colleagues and with the public at large. As you know, it's a lot of work though. I think when I initially said, hey, I'm going to do this weekly podcast, <laughs> I was like, surely this, I, I can figure this out. And, you know, I, and I've got a communications background. So I'm going to have the right equipment and all that kind of stuff. But it is to plan for to then operate and then I edit it myself. Like it's a lot, it's an undertaking, but at this point it's worth it. And I'm looking forward to continuing for, you know, the next 13 weeks that we're in session. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the nice things about podcasts is unlike the other forms of media, which sort of come and go, these things exist for time. So as people go back and try to understand maybe why things happened in the legislature or why they didn't happen in the legislature, even if you're not looking for just the current events, they can access these and and it creates a little record of a time and a place for people to understand context, which I always think is important. Absolutely. One of the places that you've got out in front is talking about uh, literacy and the crisis that you're seeing in your community, just like many other communities around the country. Can you talk about your efforts to first raise that issue and then also then how you hope to address it? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that we've wanted to do is actually make sure folks understand that there's a problem, all right? That, you know, I think it's one in three fourth graders are reading at grade level. I mean, it's a real concerning issue when you consider that that's also an upstream metric for a lot of other things that are challenging our society, right? You know, your workforce outcomes, your health outcomes, uh, in addition to your education outcomes, your likelihood to enter the criminal justice system. Uh, there's just a lot of things tied up in that initial inflection point of whether or not you can read at grade level in third and fourth grade. And so, you know, first is making sure folks understand that this is a really complex and serious issue that our community is facing, because quite frankly, I don't think most people realize that those literacy numbers are as bad as they are. And then for me, you know, part of this is a significant underfunding of public education in my state uh, at the very least, right? I mean, I think, you know, from the time of Mitch Daniels as our governor, I think we divested $300 million in public education. And, you know, I'm actually a fairly middle of the road on issues around charters and whatnot. And in fact, I think 60% of the kids in my district are in some sort of charter school. So I, I don't begrudge charter schools, but there has been a result of funding being pulled from these other types of traditional public schools that were existing beforehand. So instead of like having equitable funding, we've, we've pulled money away 
And I think one of the places that that's hurt us is in the issue of literacy. Also, you know, without diving too deeply, I think there's pedagogical things about how we teach reading that need to be improved from a curricular standpoint in Indiana, and also a focused investment in the sorts of reading comprehension educators to be deployed within our schools. And so, you know, there's a cohort of us in Indiana that are local state officials that are regularly exploring solutions here. I did a trip out to Oakland to see the work that they are doing out there uh, under the leadership of the mayor's office to make some pretty significant investments. So, you know, for me, it's it's partly funding, it's partly pedagogical, and then also, you know, some, like I said, some focused investment in specific programs that we know could contribute to higher literacy rates in the state. Absolutely. And the, the lost years of COVID absolutely exacerbated all these issues, right? Like it's- Oh, 100%. 100%. Um, yeah. It makes it that much more urgent to, to not only- address the issue, but address it as quickly as possible so that we can get people back, kids back up to to read their grade levels and beyond. So I appreciate the work. And if you come up with any good models, I know the rest of us will be interested in, in trying them out in our communities because it's a struggle everywhere. Absolutely. Can you tell us as we wrap up here a little bit about what's next? You've done the local level, you've done the state level. How do you sort of set goals and decide... Um, what to do next in your in your career and you're trying to make an impact and keep those, as you say, keep those doors open? Yeah, it's a great question and, and not an easy one to answer. I, I'll tell you that right now what I'm focused on is finding ways to get things done despite being in the super minority. And part of that is, you know, honing the craft around my approach to communication and building inroads with my my colleagues on both sides of the aisle. But admittedly, there's also the piece of this that's, you know, winning some seats in our legislature and evening things out just a little bit. I don't expect Indiana to be a majority Democrat state as it relates to the, the House and the Senate. Uh, but I do expect us to reflect our state just a little bit better. And I think that involves us picking up some seats to, to level the conversation out of it. I was actually, you know, today was interviewing for for my podcast, our minority leader who has served at, in the majority and the minority in the Indiana State House Representatives. And he talked about how, you know, when you have 51 votes, government just is better because you can't really go to the fringe. You have to get votes from the other side to get your ideas across the finish line. And, you know, every vote matters at that point. And man, I'd love to operate in a government that works that way. I can actually hear some of my friends in Congress probably disagreeing with me right now as they're dealing with a very slim majority. But, you know, I still believe that that's the next thing for me. It's not about running for something else. It's not about what's the next step up the ladder. It's it's about what can I do to make the spot I'm in more effective, more compelling, and empower some of my colleagues and some of the candidates that will be stepping up to, to try to join us to make them as effective as possible in reaching some of those voters that, uh, as we talked about a little earlier, we've we've lost touch with and that we need if we're going to have a greater role in you know future years of the General Assembly here in Indiana. I appreciate that. I also think uh, maybe you have a future hosting podcasts, so we can always <laughs> keep that dream alive as well as you get down that road. But I want to thank you for being a New Deal leader. Thank you for your service to your state and encourage every all of our listeners to check out Session Sessions and get a little insight into the state legislative process, how the sausage is made, and maybe why the Democrats should be focusing on the front of the brownie box and not on the back as much. Or even just the side of the box every once in a while. I mean, if we could just start to turn it. Yeah. I like that. Incremental change. Incremental change. That's right. That's right.
Well, thank you. And we look forward to hearing more about what you're doing, both in news and also from your podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to An Honorable Profession. Please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders and keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Row Group produces podcasts. I'm Ryan Coonerty. And because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast.